Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Now, according to research, between 2014 and through 2019, black women made up the fastest growing entrepreneurial group in the United States. Then the pandemic hit last year. Well, it shifted things, not just for folks of color, but for anyone who was working in a, across any industry, whether you owned a business or you were working for a business, we were all hit by this pandemic. But there was something pre-pandemic that still exists when it comes to barriers, and that is, of course, funding. According to a recent crunch-based study last year, funding for women-led companies dropped to 2.3%. That's down from 2.8% in 2019. Well, here locally, Dr. Roshana Novellis is an Atlanta-based fintech expert and the founder of Enricher. And she joins me now because we're going to talk about how she plans her company is working to ensure that more women-led and minority-led businesses have access to what else? Money, capital, funding, dollar bills, however you want to say it. That's we're going to talk about it. Dr. Novellis, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. We often hear this. I've had so many conversations about this on this program. You ask people, listen, what's the biggest challenge? What's your biggest concern? And usually when they talk about, yes, can I do this? Can I own a business and balance life? But usually somewhere in the top two, it's also money, funding. How often do you hear that? I hear that all the time. And unfortunately, a lot of people say, hear that and say, oh, we just need to train you. We'll take you through another course and that'll give you all everything you need to grow. But what we actually need is funding. And that's one of the reasons I started Enricher. Let's talk about your path for a moment, because as I always say, there's always an origin story. We'll let you down this road here. And I believe your mother had something to do with this, too. So, you know, you better go ahead and give mom her props on this. I always give my mother her flowers. So my mother told me that all women needed to be in charge of their own economic power from a very young age. It was actually the age of 12 when she started taking me with her to investment club meetings with other educators at the school which she taught. And she wanted me not only to be able to do my own financial research, but to be confident making my own decisions and and presenting those decisions to others. So at a very young age, I became very confident with finance. And uh, by the age of 15, I told my mother, I have a whole plan to pay for my college education. So I don't want you to worry. And at that age, I wrote over 200 letters to organizations across the country, telling them how it's going to change the world and asking for their support. And I was able to raise over $600,000 that paid for all of my degrees, including my doctorate um, at that age. When I was 15, I was begging my father for a car. <laughs> I missed no, something. I, I and my parents to were make great. My mother's life easier. 
That is a great, great story. But, you know, and then I know a lot of folks listening say, yeah, you know, I, my parents, they did encourage us. That is a great origin story. But, you know, we often hear, though, still, when it comes to disparities and, and inequities, there's still always this gap that exists between people of color and and, 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 not, and non-folk of color, best highway we want to put it, especially when it comes to startups and often having access to capital was all of this part of what you learned as a teen and what your mother taught you led you down the path of starting Enrich Her? Yes, because what I was able to do as a teen was to aggregate capital from a variety of sources to pursue my dreams. I was able to pick the university independently and then was able to purchase my first house at the age of 22 without any student debt. And that really opened up my opportunities in life, right? But a lot of people who look like me don't have that upbringing and don't have those those opportunities. And not only that, a lot of financial institutions have had no incentive to innovate. They don't select to um, hire people of color or women to be in those strategic financial uh, positions that interface with that business owner. And so a lot of us are left feeling left out and uncared for in the whole process. So I wanted to start Enricher not only to be a solution for that capital side, but to we have a 100% diverse team because we want to look like the community in which we serve and communicate with them where they are. All of those are really important to me because I want to live in a world that reflects um, what I want to see. So, Dr. Novellas, this is more than just about getting access to capital. It's really about a mindset, too, and also about having a plan. Because often we hear that, what is is this this statistic, 50% of small businesses fail within the first three years. We keep hearing that. So it's more than just the money. It's about having a plan and understanding what that process looks like when you're going to start a business. Understand what that process looks like and having that community. So at Enricher, we have a community of business owners that are supportive to one another. Oftentimes, we business owners feel like we're alone, and this community also is, is helpful. Let's take our listeners through the process then. Someone reaches out to you and they say, hey, I have an idea, or do you really want to work with folks who've already been established? How does all this work? We have and a financial process built into our website. On the funding side, we do that have been in operation for at least a year. But if you happen to that time, we're at the idea phase, we can um, help you with getting ready. So we take you through that financial training, including cash flows, how to apply for grants, venture capital dollars and the like. And thus far, we've helped over 163 companies access over 14 million in capital. So it's about the community getting to the place where it needs to go. What do you most often hear from folks when when they come to you all? Is it other than the funding? What are the concerns or or challenges they feel that they're faced with in in starting a business or, or operating a business? 
a lot of times we as women or people of color feel like we have to be perfect in order to launch our business. And that's because a lot of us don't have that financial safety net. A lot of times people tell us when you want to start a business, just ask your friends and family to provide that first couple hundred thousand dollars and you can iterate until you figure out what that product market fit is. However, we often launch with less than a month in reserves. Mm -hmm. And so uh, people really want to know that they are making putting their best foot forward before they launch. And that's why we have this supportive community. That's why we offer to look through people's uh, business canvas and financial model so that at least they have a, a good opportunity to 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 go into the market with the resources that they have today. And I'm curious, through your lens, has the business model for startup change? We actually had someone on this program uh, not too long ago that said, you know what, no longer do you need, and this is what this individual said, so don't send me an email. No longer do you need this 10-page business plan. You need one page. I agree. Uh, I don't believe in business plans. Sometimes we have to write them because a specific funder requests them, but they're really outdated. As a startup founder, what you do is interact with customers and you iterate based on that. The most important thing is having a customer that pays you money so that you can grow your business. And uh, writing a, a 20 to 50 page business plan isn't necessarily going to get you that step closer to that customer uh, feeling like your product is essential to their well-being. So the lean canvas, that one page business plan with your customer segments, problems and the like is the best approach. I'm glad you said that the canvas, that's exactly what this individual talked about. Uh, if you're just joining us, I'm joined by Dr. Roshana Novellis, an Atlanta-based fintech expert. And we're talking about uh, also Enrich Her, which is an opportunity to help women-led and, and, and minority-led businesses. I want to go back to that canvas because for our listeners who may not be familiar with it, what does that in, entail? What should go on this one-page sheet if you think about even just taking your concept and putting it down on paper? What should you yeah, include? The, the, the categories are your problem, your solution, your unique value proposition, your customer segments, how do you generate revenue, and your channels, so the channel partners. Say that again for our listeners, because I know someone was writing it down and they had to pull over. The problem, solution, your unique value proposition, your customer segments, your uh, channel, so the acquisition, um, the ways that people find out about your problem, your revenue uh, model, and your cost centers. What are some of the common mistakes that folks make, and, and particularly if you think it's unique to women or minority-led businesses when they are in their startup mode, what are those some of those common mistakes? Or missteps, we'll call it mistakes, missteps. Some of the missteps are not staying on top of their financial model. A lot of new uh, companies focus on activities that aren't revenue generating or or won't pay for the cost of the product or service that they offer. I remember I met this woman who spent a whole week uh, creating this beautiful product and then sold it for $100. And I said, how is that? worth your time to do it. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times as new businesses, we are afraid of having revenue as a small number, but it's those that relationship with the finance that's going to help you navigate through and grow. Is there an area that, because you work in fintech, and we'll get that into that in a moment, because I've had conversations about the fintech industry, which is booming. 
uh, if folks don't know, but is there an industry or a product or service that you feel is maybe oversaturated or one that you feel folks should really look into? It really depends on uh, the business owner's uh, passion and direction. So uh, I definitely, as Enricher, focus on supporting all types of business owners throughout the U.S. So uh, I, I don't think I have much more to add uh, to that particular question. So you don't want to we don't want to discourage anyone. Um, exactly. Because I was going to say, you know what, we don't need any more. What we need is more barbecue places around Atlanta. But that's just me. <laughs> So, well, <laughs> our response is we need more vegan restaurants, more like, okay, Dr. Novellis. Okay, we need more vegan restaurants. And I'll get an email. Yes. And I, look, I love vegan food. I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> wouldn't help if we had a few more, you know, barbecue spots <laughs> around Atlanta. Uh, let's talk about some success stories here. Uh, what can you share for our audience? And, and you don't, if you don't want to mention the business or the person by name, but can you share a success story, one that you, you always point to when you, when you talk about Enricher? Yes, my favorite entrepreneur, uh, her name is Barbara Jones. She's the CEO of Lily R&B. She was the first company that we were able to fund. And within one year, she quadrupled the revenue for her business. So she went from a million dollar company to $4 million in less than uh, 12 months. We were the first company that gave her a loan. She had tried several banks, several financial institutions, and she only could qualify for a predatory loan of 80% plus per year. And so uh, now we have funded her business three times and she's here in Atlanta crushing it. And I love her story and stories like her and people like her are the reason that I'm here in this market. You said Lily R&B? Yes. Wow. What was it about Lily that you all said, you know what, we are going to take a chance. We are going to fund this entrepreneur. What was it? She was like a no brainer. When I met her in town, she was had amazing work ethic and amazing background. She's a former veteran. And I knew that she would do anything it took to grow her business. And so I couldn't believe that other people didn't see what I saw because it was an instant decision. Like just yes. I will fund your company because you are simply amazing. And it's those kinds of things that a lot of financial institutions don't include. What is the background of this person? Mm -hmm. Do they do they stick to what they set out to do no matter the challenge? So I think anyone that's a, a woman in the military and who's been an entrepreneur for a long time already has those capabilities. So Again, she's an amazing and she's a positive person. She's attended every single Enricher activation that we've mm -hmm. ever had. And, and she's one of my favorite members of our community. But beyond her, um, we funded over 163 companies uh, thus far and are, and are planning to ramp it up to uh, over 100 million within the next few years. Has COVID um, hindered any of your, your typical uh, forms or, or meetings that you encourage or you actually maybe even uh, that the startups, the business owners have to attend to? How has COVID impacted you all? Well, luckily, we are a remote 
first company. We have been for years. So while we did have to reduce the in-person activations, we already had a digital platform that has uh, members globally that are active. So that is still up and running. So we had to focus exclusively on that digital platform. But moreover, uh, because of everything that's happening and the highlight of, of racial disparity, a lot of organizations have sought us out to, to highlight the work that we've been doing in the community. So fortunately, I did appear in a Super Bowl ad for Logitech. I mm-hmm. recently appeared in the Master card campaign with Jennifer Hudson, focusing on our work, uh, providing capital to women-led businesses and Black-owned businesses. I just got an email from someone that wants to say, are there any particular businesses that might qualify more uh, for assistance, or is it really just, I'm I'm adding this part, is it case by case? You don't want to say one particular type of business or industry will receive more funding. I'm sure you don't want to put that out there. Right. Unless you do. We are... (laughs) No, you're you're definitely correct. So we have funded uh, companies in the service industry, all the way from hairstylists to people who prepare tax returns to those in the tech industry. Um, this, this, there's a huge range. So as long as you have a sound understanding of finance and are able to manage uh, cash flow, we would op- be open to evaluating your business. When you say manage cash flow and have a pretty good sense of finance, take that further for our listeners. Yes. Yeah, so the number one reason that businesses fail is because of cash flow. They'd simply run out of money and aren't able to pay their staff or purchase their inventory or the like. And this is one of the reasons that we take our applicants through financial modeling and their lean canvas so they understand what decisions they have to make. So, for instance, if you uh, have a product um, and you have to purchase it a minimum order of $50,000 for your product and yet you get paid for that product 60 days later, What are you doing in between that 60 day period to sustain your company? So we want to make sure that every business under owner has an uh, answer for this question and a a plan in place, because as long as you understand the the cash flow and timing, you should be able to maintain your business. And of course, emails coming in. So we're just going to end with this. How do folks learn more about your enricher and how do they apply? Because sending me an email, I can't help you, but I can ask this question. You can learn more about us at EnrichHer.com. That's E-N-R-I-C-H-H-E-R.com. And let me ask you, where do you see EnrichHer in the next, uh, let's say, five years? I intend for Richer to deploy billions of dollars to well-qualified business owners who have customers' cash flows and just need money to grow. We will be the go-to source and we'll show the world that people who are women um, and people of color are amazing business owners and will be having a huge impact on the world and and be a beacon of economic prosperity. Well, based on what you told me when you were 15 years old, I have no doubt in my mind that that will actually be the case. Dr. Roshana Novellis, an Atlanta-based fintech expert and the founder of Enricher, thank you so much for taking the time. We'll have links on our website to Enricher. Thank you so much for what you're doing to help a lot of people's dreams come true. Thank you. Thank you. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. 
you can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Community engagement. It's phrasing that we often hear used by corporations, nonprofits, and institutions of higher learning. And we use it around here in the public radio landscape. Community engagement. But what exactly does it mean to be truly engaged and in dialogue with your surrounding area community? Well, Emory University has a new community engagement strategy of their own. Alan Anderson is leading the effort. He also serves as assistant vice president for university partnerships, and he joins me now. So, Vice President Anderson, thank you for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And and before we get in, I, I just have to say I'm so honored to be on your show. I know you do amazing work. Um, I'm relatively new to the region, um, but uh, one of the first people I got to listen to was you. Um, and so <laughs> oh, I, I apologize say, for that. <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. You do excellent work and I love the programming. So just an honor to be here today. I appreciate that. Let's talk about community engagement through your lens. How do you define community engagement? And then I'm going to follow up with another question. How do you define effective community engagement? Because there are two different, two different things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, so it, I think at the end of the day, one of the things that we were really focusing in on at Emory is, is trying to figure out better ways to both enhance and develop thriving and mutually beneficial sustained partnerships that, number one, build on the community assets as well as leverage the institutional strengths that we have, uh, which include our faculty, staff, students, and alumni to address critical challenges in our community. So it's, it's recognition of the strengths that we may possess from an institutional perspective and the strengths that the community already possesses working in tandem in a mutually beneficial way to achieve uh, solutions to challenges that we all agree need to be addressed. And so if all that's aligned and there and you equal you take that formula and you get effective community engagement is that what you're saying yeah I, I think so I mean at the end of the day if you if you have this imbalance um, where uh, maybe the needs of the university are are ahead of that of the community um, then you end up with situations which I think it leads to the to the second part of your comment around you know what does ineffective look like where there's that imbalance um, where there's this taking of resources where um, you know, individuals may come in and conduct research or gather data through surveys and things like that to be a part of a published report, but yet don't actually go about the process of addressing the the individual needs of the community as defined by the community. So I think we're trying to be a lot more intentional, Mm -hmm. make sure we're listening, make sure we're doing a better job of uplifting um, and supporting um, based on what we can support and how to be more effective at doing so. Well, then let me ask you this, who is the community? Give us a snapshot of this community that Emory University wants to take its strength. You recognize, you said you recognize its strength and also the strength and needs of the community. So who's the community? Yeah, yeah so it's, it's a great question because one of the things that 
I think it's important to kind of share is a little bit of background. So um, uh, late in 2018, uh, our, our former president, uh, Claire Sturck, uh, launched a strategic framework. And, and so that had four kind of main pillar areas, one of which uh, was focused on, and I'll say this just to kind of be rather shorthand as opposed to kind of get into the full definitions, but really a focus on addressing the student experience, um, making sure that uh, we have eminent faculty, uh, being a world-class research institution, and then lastly, being more engaged in the broader Atlanta region. And so when we define community based on this strategy, we're thinking about the broader Atlanta region and saying, these, this is the area in which we reside. There are opportunities for us to be more engaged. Let's think strategically around as defined by the community in that broader uh, Atlanta region, what are some of the major challenges that, that are faced? And then also doing this inward look around areas in which we can have an impact and trying to align those as best as possible so that we're being more effective in the ways in which we're engaging. And so that's kind of the, the regional area in which we're defining uh, the community. Then how do you assess the community's strengths or challenges? You know, often we hear about focus groups and often we, we often we hear about surveys. Uh, being that I started my career in commercial radio, I'm not a big fan of focus groups. <laughs> I'm just going to say that. Hope that's not a surprise yep. to anyone. Because no, hey, you know, sometimes, you know, because the problem is, the problem has been, uh, Vice President Anderson, is that the focus group is not a diverse group of folks to often yeah, begin absolutely. with. And so you're not getting the ideas and, and a different, the varied ideologies that you would need. So how do you all access in this community? Because it's, that's big. That's a large region for Emory. Yeah, I mean, so, so there's a variety of methods. I mean, some of that is through surveys. Some of that is working with our partners in the community, thinking about the things like the Atlanta Regional Commission, for example. You know, you recognize the, the amount of data that they have in terms of actually unearthing some of these things. When you listen to our elected officials in terms of um, how they've expressed uh, the needs as expressed by the community. So when you kind of gather in that information, you get a good sense of, of some strategic areas that are, are challenging. You think about things like transportation, you think about affordable housing, you know, these are kind of the main points that kind of often rise to the top. But then there's also things related to, you know, health and well-being, um, addressing issues of social and economic mobility, addressing issues, um, thinking about the fact that we have this amazing creative economy in Atlanta and how do we um, play a role in, in kind of continuing to explode this because of the fact that we've had some some great success there, but we realize that a lot of people come here to do business in that regard. And so um, how do we continue to create access and opportunity when you see those things happening? So I think that's how we kind of got some of that information. Um, and, um, and I think from that feedback, it helped us kind of think through, okay, where can we go in and, and say we have an impact uh, and can make an impact? And the folks over at the ARC are wonderful folks for that type of data. Combined with just listening to WABE every day and closer look and city lights and the news and you got you got everything you need. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Alan Anderson. He's a assistant vice president for university partnerships at Emory University. We're talking about the institution's new community engagement strategy. OK, so you've given our listeners a, a, a lot of metrics here, a lot to think about. Now, enter you and what you have to do. How do you all take all this information and how are you dividing it up into what key areas? Tell us about it. Yeah. 
So after kind of getting that data from an external perspective, one of the things we recognize, and this is maybe not a unique challenge to Emory because it, it may happen in a lot of industries, um, we had a very um, you know, decentralized method of how things were working in terms of people's engagement. So you might have a school that's engaged with a local partnership with a K-12 education school. You may have uh, you know, some folks who are working with um, a community partner here or there. And, and unfortunately, the right and left didn't know that they might have been working with the exact same partner. Mm -hmm. So we did a, a real good scan of some of the ex existing engagements. We found hundreds of engagements happening broadly throughout the region. And yet, um, around certain community partners, um, certain schools or units didn't know that there were other schools and unit people from the same university working with that same community partner. So we had to get a good assessment of like where we were at. And, and so now that we have some of that data, that's what allowed us to kind of formulate the three strategic areas that we feel are the kind of core of where we can really lead in. Um, there's one that's related to health and well-being, and and that probably seems pretty obvious given our our, our healthcare presence that mm -hmm. we have in the region. There's a second that's related to the social and economic mobility, uh, and that has kind of two folds to it. There's the social mobility when you think about from an educational standpoint, how do you make sure kids in the K-12 education space are meeting those milestones educationally, third grade readiness, sixth grade, ninth grade, uh, and how we can actually play a part in terms of enriching that uh, educational experience. There's also the kind of economic mobility. And you think about the fact that as Emory is the largest employer now in our region, mm -hmm. you realize that there's a huge economic power that we can bring to the region, both from a jobs perspective, as well as how we bring on vendors to support some of the operational needs. And so how do we actually be more intentional about uh, opening that up to, to more folks in the region to be more inclusive economically? And then the third area related to art, science, and cultural enrichment, you know, when you think about, again, this boom of the creative economy we have here in Atlanta, and you recognize the resources and assets that Emory may possess from regard to the arts and sciences, you know, we have a great opportunity to really influence that space as well and, and really be um, powerful in our efforts. So I think that's what we realized, and a lot of our work was, was kind of organized around that, but we just didn't have a clear anchor around the fact that this was important. Uh, so, you know, we, we talk about our vision internally is a lot, it's kind of moving beyond um, individual altruism and individual acts of schools and units to actually make our enterprise um, feel as though what it means to be a part of the Emory enterprise is actually doing this work as opposed to individuals doing it and working mm -hmm. at the enterprise. So let me ask you this then. We all, look, we know Emory is a wonderful research institution. We've had so many experts and, and, and yep. professors on this program along. And listen, every I think every institution in this region is wonderful with that. So someone listening says, well, that's great for the community. What is Emory really going to get out of this? What is the, 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 the hope that, you, that comes for the institution? What's the benefit, I guess, could be a good question for Emory. Yeah, I mean, I, I think. The, the first word that comes to mind is just being a trusted resource in the eyes of the community. So when you're going throughout the community, all avenues, you know, from, from Bankhead to Buckhead, you know, everywhere you go inside of our, our, our region and you ask people who actually live in the community, what's your impression of Emory? You want to be able to have that feedback come back where he says, I see them as a trusted resource. I see them as an asset where 
I can access them. I can actually uh, find a pathway to a job if I'm looking for employment. Mm -hmm. I can see that the local business owner is looking to partner and that there's an opportunity to do so. The community-based organization sees that Emory is the resource uh, for our students to become engaged, whether it be from volunteerism or our faculty in terms of you know, experiential learning, working closely hand in hand with those, those same community-based organizations to address challenges that they may face or that we collectively face. So I think it's it's really being trusted. That's mm-hmm. the biggest thing. So that when you get that, that feedback, you recognize that like, okay, we've moved beyond a program here or a program there that's viewed in a certain way to the actual overall brand being one where people say, okay, I can trust this brand. They are committed. They are really trying to make a difference in our community in a positive way. Well, along the way, Mr. Anderson, how often are you checking in with the community or how often do you have folks who are embedded in the community and that are also maybe working, I don't know, maybe as a liaison or what have you, but how often are you checking in along the way to make sure that there aren't any missteps or perhaps there is a disconnect with the community over a particular issue. And we know here in the Atlanta area, there's there's always a lot of issues as it relates to whether it's uh, affordability in housing, you know, workforce development, education, transit and, and, and mobility, which is what we all focus on here. So what's that, what is that, that metric that you use? What's that assessment to make sure you're, you're staying on track with what you truly want to do and that the community is a part of that? Yeah, so the, the, the one thing that I wanted to, to, to mention again is just the fact that as we did this kind of environmental scan of all the ways in which we were touching different community areas of Atlanta, we, we found hundreds of different partnerships. Um, what you realize out of that is that those individuals from individual schools, you know, Rollins or, you know, our, uh, our school of nursing or, you know, our business school. And when you think about all those different schools and units that are, have existing partnerships in the community, they already have that trust in a lot of ways. And so when you ask those individuals kind of in those different departments, hey, what's some of the feedback that you're getting from those community partners? What are some of the pieces of feedback that we need to be attuned to? How can we help more effectively be a better resource, be a better ally, a better collaborative partner? That's how we get that information. And those individuals are already deployed. So Mm -hmm. it's really about how do we create better connectivity throughout the entire Emory enterprise such that if you have healthcare workers who are working specifically with a community agency and you have students who are working with that same community agency, how do we make sure that there's collaboration and coordination such that we can have more intentional impact? And I think when you do that, you can actually get better results because you're gonna get consistent feedback from the community partner around where we can actually lean in and be more helpful. Let me ask you this as we wrap up, how do you then see all of this playing a part when it comes to social justice issues? Obviously, right now here in Georgia and Atlanta, we can name a a whole bunch. Obviously, right now with the new voting law, um, also with racial justice, you know, as as relates to community uh, policing, uh, policing in communities of colors. Uh, Is that something you all would want to be involved in from a community engagement standpoint? Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, about six months ago, we we brought on our, our new president, President uh, Finviz, mm-hmm. and one of the first things he, he laid out was his very clear intention to be involved in addressing issues of 
social justice and racial equity. He made that a, part, a priority. That became a part of a lot of his talking points, a lot of the ways in which he engaged. And it went beyond just the talk. So we established a number of committees to address you know, concerns that's, as expressed by community, both our internal immigrant community as well as the broad community related to these same social justice issues. So there is a committee that's focused on addressing issues related to policing within our own Emory police force. There, there's an opportunity for us to really go in deeper and focus on diversity, equity, inclusion efforts broadly within Emory. And so we launched a strategic planning process. And as a, as a representative of one of those subgroups, I actually pulled individual leaders from the community to help <laughs> gather and think strategically around what should we be doing at Emory to address these concerns and be a real advocate. Emory was one of the first universities to sign on to the Metro Atlanta Chamber's racial equity effort, um, just because we recognize the importance of being a part of, of that work. Um, and so there are a number of things. And then I think lastly, you know, we have to reconcile our own history and our own past history. We recognize where our university came from. Uh, we recognize the land in which we, we procured. We recognize how those buildings were built. Um, and so we have an effort underway to to really uplift and acknowledge those those moments of our past history. Because if you can't do that, you're again, going back to the point I made in the beginning, you wanna have trust and you can't get trust unless you're willing to admit uh, some of your past failings and ultimately work to address them in partnership with the community. Well, we definitely wanna bring you all back for an update. Alan Anderson is Assistant Vice President for University Partnerships at Emory University. We've been talking about their new community engagement strategy. Thank you so much for taking the time, Mr. Anderson. I really appreciate it. Going to bring you back because a lot I got a lot of emails with a lot of questions. So I guess that means got to bring you back. Uh... Well, thank you. I appreciate the time. Take it's my care pleasure. Now. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. Yes, this is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. According to data from the Pew Research Center, close to half of Americans said local news outlets were, quote, major source of information throughout the pandemic. On today's program, as we before we say goodbye, we're going to check in with the founder of one of the metro area's hyper local publications. We enjoy it. We actually have a partnership with them, full disclosure. So join me now from Decaturish.com, editor and a big Alabama fan, Dan Wisenhunt. Dan, thanks for taking the time. Hey, Rose. How are you doing? I was going to say roll tie, but we don't say that on this program. Yeah, <laughs> it's all right. Dan, before... Hate us because we can't be us. So. <laughs> I'll listen to you. Before we get to some of those top stories in DeKalb County, let's talk about Decaturish for a moment. Because as I mentioned, you know, so folks have said, look, and we have come to really rely on local news outlets. But we also know the pandemic hit a lot of these smaller uh, outlets. How did you all fare last year? Did you do okay? Um, you know, all things considered, we did pretty well. We didn't uh, lose revenue overall, which was a good thing. Um, I considered that a win. Um, our membership went from about 700 paying supporters to about 1,500 paying supporters in the span of about uh, six months. Uh, which was pretty good. Now what we're starting to see is um, as, as things are starting to get better, people are sort of checking out, which is fine. I'm checking out too. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not necessarily as, as, you know, into the thick of all the COVID news like I was. Um, 
and that's okay, you know. Um, so we're starting to see some of that come back to earth, but we're still retaining our core audience, which is good. And, you know, I, I feel like we're in a really good sh- position. We don't have, you know, a whole lot of overhead. It's a very low barrier to entry to get into digital news. Uh, so from that standpoint, I think we're doing pretty good. Um, and, I, and I'm confident, you know, we just started uh, another website covering Tucker, uh, which is also going to help us as well. Uh, so hopefully, you know, knock on wood, I mean, anything can happen, but I, I'm really liking our chances. You all have been covering some big stories in, in DeKalb County, and I want to start with what's going on with the DeKalb County School Board. And, and I'm sorry, with the Cater Schools. Uh, let's, there's so much to get to, Dan. Uh, let's talk about that. What's happening with the Decatur Schools right now and, and the superintendent? And what you've done a lot of investigative reporting into this. What's going on? Yeah, so the, the short version of it is back in December of 2019, the human resources director and the finance director simultaneously announced their resignations, which are those are two of the top C-level people in the cabinet. So mm-hmm. immediately my eyebrow went up and I said, well, what's going on? And we had an interview with the superintendent, David Duty uh, in January of 2020, and David basically said, well, I to back up, I had heard that there might have been some sort of an investigation going that might have prompted it. I didn't know what caused it. And he basically said, yes, there was there were complaints about the human resources director, not the finance director. We investigated those uh, in the midst of us investigating those. He parted ways. And so that was the story in January 2020. So fast forward to January 2021 and the human resources director's name's David Adams sues David Duty and the school board. And he says that because of what David Duty said to me, and I published in my article, that his job opportunities had dried up and that had violated the severance clause in, in violated the non-disclosure, non-defamation mm-hmm. agreement in the severance clause. Okay. So in addition to that, he said that the reason that he and the finance director, Susan Hurst, had left the district was because they accused the superintendent, David Duty, of taking way more vacation than mm. he was actually allowed to take under his contract. And so they they sued him. Uh, you know, at the time, the school district said, you know, these these allegations are slander. We're going to defend it in court. But, you know, me, I, I had to pull that thread a little bit because mm-hmm. I, I wanted to find out what is is this true? Because it to me, that's a pretty shocking allegation. You know, you pay superintendents are expected to work all year basically you know with a, with a few breaks yeah um and the the allegation was not only that he had taken time off during the summer but that he had gotten paid for it so he had gotten he had basically said i didn't use my vacation this year so i'm going to cash out my vacation days and so that was that was the basis for that mm-hmm. for that investigation so- and it it, it you got a lot of you got a lot of looks looks a lot of clicks on that it 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 where are we now with this? And well, uh, so so we did the investigation. We found out that uh, several of the allegations have have a factual basis. He did get a hundred thousand dollars in extra compensation for cashing out vacation days. He said he did not use. The most interesting part of the story is that on January twenty seventh, I believe, of this year, I filed a records request for all his vacation requests. And on that day, he went and entered four years worth of vacation requests on that same day. 
after I, and he said in our interview, you know, that was in response to your records request. I thought it had been entered. It, it hadn't been. And, hmm. um, so we did a, there's a whole lot to this, but, yeah. uh, if you Google a super deal on decaturish.com, you'll, you'll find some, some stories about it. Uh, we, we found his contract made it really hard and expensive to fire him. It was going to cost him like upwards of half a million dollars if they fired him for convenience. Um, so the board rescinded that contract after we reported about it. They're going to renegotiate it. They also said they're going to investigate uh, these allegations that have, have come up on our reporting, but the school board hasn't named an investigator yet. Mm. Uh, are, are taking any steps uh, in that direction. So between that, Dan, and that's that that's like a ooh, that's a lot between that and also COVID, uh, mm-hmm. you have been covering a lot. What has been that story? Other than this, what has been the other story, the other headlines that you all have been working on? And when I say you all, you have a very small staff over there at Decaturish. Yeah, we're, we're freelance only for the most part. I'm the only full-time employee uh, at the company myself and, my director of operations and full disclosure is also my wife. Uh, so we were literally a mom and pop business. Uh, you know, as far as, you know, COVID has obviously been the big story. Uh, the, the voter suppression law that mm-hmm. the Georgia legislature just approved has been a big one for our readers. You know, DeKalb County uh, helped deliver Georgia to, to Joe Biden and to Senator uh, Warnock and Senator Ossoff. Uh, so it's it's a very big deal to our readers here. Uh, DeKalb County has basically become Georgia's blue wall. Mm. Uh, and so any any attempts to subvert the will of those voters is going to get uh, a lot of attention around here. Uh, so that really the election was a huge deal for us. Um, probably as big as COVID was. And of course, you know, social unrest, uh, Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. the, all that stuff. It, I felt like we lived like four years in the span of one year, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's this weird time thing that happens um, where I can't remember life the way it was before. Dan, when you look at that, the tremendous jump in your subscribers, what does that say to you about the importance of, we hear at public radio world, we know the importance of having donors and members. What does that say to you about the importance of, of a local publication? We call it a hyper local publication and, and what it means to the community. I think, you know, the, the most important thing you can be as a news outlet is useful. And, and I think when you stop being useful, that's when you lose your readers. You know, we cover, you know, all of the big stuff, but the things that people really look to us the most for are what's, I call it the dirt moving stories. Okay. I saw some dirt moving over there. What, what's that business going to be? What happened to this business? I heard it closed. You know, this road is closed. Why is this road closed today? You know, I saw an accident. Uh, Can you tell me the story about what happened there? Uh, So we really do a lot of, uh, to use a baseball analogy, we hit a lot of singles and doubles. You know, we we pick up a lot of those stories uh, and they don't get, you know, crazy clicks. They don't do, they don't set the world on fire, but you know, our readers appreciate knowing that there's a place where they can get their questions answered and that when they pick up the phone and they're going to talk to somebody and somebody's going to be like, well, yeah, let me send some emails out. You know, one thing we've, we've done really well with is vaccine information Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because the communication around that has not been 
great. Uh, it's not been as terrible as it is in some places, but um, you know, you, you've got a lot of people at varying degrees of, of communication proficiency trying to get this information. So we have really made a lot of inroads just connecting people to vaccine resources and, and how to get those and, and take care of themselves. And I actually got my second shot today. So yeah. uh, if you haven't gotten your shot, please go out and get one. <laughs> and see, you can say that as an independent. Uh, right. What have you learned, Dan? Because I know that this has been uh, passionate for you. And I know that, you know, there have been times where it's been really tough for you as we wrap up. What have you learned since you first started Decaters.com when it first went live and into now. What's been those biggest lessons for you? I've learned I have no idea what I'm doing. Oh, um, everyone says yeah. that. <laughs> well, you know, I was listening to your, you've had some great guests uh, and the person talking about businesses, you know, really struck a chord with me. You know, I, I, I'm a very fortunate person in that I did not have to worry about losing my house if I made a mistake. Mm -hmm. So I, I had the freedom to fail in ways that maybe a lot of other business owners didn't. Uh, but I, I would say the main thing that I've learned is that, you know, people still care about their local news and take pride yeah. in their local news and they still like seeing their picture in the paper. So that is thank true God for that. Any barbecue spots over there? <laughs> I, I, won't, uh, I won't put you on the spot with that. You'll get in trouble. Community Q for life forever, okay? But uh, City Barbecue in Decatur is quite good, and you should check it out. It's in downtown Decatur. All right. Barbecue Cafe. Barbecue Cafe. Look Excuse at you. Me. Dan Wisenhunt, editor and founder of Decatur's.com, all things DeKalb County. Dan, thank you so much for taking time as always. I always appreciate having a conversation you. with you. Take care. Same. Take care, Rose. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer for today was Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights now at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to wherever you like. And by the way, before y'all send me an email, I love all the barbecue places. Just want some variety. That's all I'm saying. So I already got one email. <laughs> Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.